This is The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner from Book Public on Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. On this episode, Peter Orner and I discuss The Children Stay by Alice Monroe. The Children Stay. That's a curious title. It's a declaration made by a husband to his wife who has left a family vacation spot cottage for a hotel in the town to meet a lover who has followed her there. Perhaps because she's away from home base and in this temporary space with her husband, children, and in-laws, Pauline is already disconnected from her role and routines as wife and mother, and already drawn to the attentions of another man who represents something we don't at first quite understand on the surface of things. The interpersonal relationships are complicated in this family unit. Pauline has been true to her roles for years and tries to imagine going through the motions of a life with this other man. In a move that defies reasonableness and maybe even believability, she leaves her husband and children during the family vacation. When he learns of her leaving, husband Brian declares, the children stay, and that's the starkest revenge he can take upon her for her infidelity. She is unmoved by the threat. There follows for the mother the thought of an acute pain, the narrator tells us. But did Pauline stay with Jeffrey or even really want to make a life with him? Or was he merely an excuse to leave an unsatisfying life that she refused to endure? What she sought out appeared before her like an expansive possibility yet to be explored over the rest of her life. She convinces herself that she will manage this acute pain, this predictably torturous cloud of sorrow that will follow her, but that will be easier somehow because she can, quote, carry along and get used to it until it's only the past she's grieving for and not any possible present. In his essay, Surviving the Lives We Have, Peter Orner discusses a short novel by Andre Debuse, Voices from the Moon. The opening line of this work is, It's divorce that did it. Larry and Richie are the sons of the divorced parents. Richie, writes Orner, quote, understands that we, whether or not we are fathers or mothers, will always do damage to our own families. All the faith and love in the world can't make us stop. He tells us that two years before the story opens, the boy's mother, Joan, quote, committed what many might consider an even more unforgivable sin against conventional morality, she walked out on her husband and her 10-year-old son. She sees Richie regularly, but the hurt never relents. She says, we don't have to live great lives. We just have to understand and survive the ones we've got. When the protagonist of The Children's Stay first meets Jeffrey, the man with whom she will have the affair, he doesn't really pay attention to her. But then he looks directly at her, impertinently and searchingly, only when Pauline's husband, Brian, points out she could be a talented actress in his production of Eurydice, except for her lack of confidence. Now Jeffrey trains his eyes on Pauline, someone he doesn't believe is especially beautiful, but that he suddenly finds irresistible. In his essay, A Palm of the Hand Story, Peter Orner points to another work of literature, Snow Country by Yasunari Kawabata, where a man looks into the eyes of a woman, well, the reflection of the woman's eye on the window as she sits across from him on a train. It's the opening of their star-crossed union, like the one in The Children's Day, where there is, quote, nothing remotely romantic, even as it might be sexually charged. What the protagonist seems to be after is what Peter Orner describes as the ecstasy of a beginning. Perhaps that's the same kind of energy Pauline is searching for in leaving her family. Even if she doesn't know for sure, if looking straight ahead will save her from what is behind her. Here's our discussion of Alice Munro's The Children's Stay. We begin with Peter Orner reading a short excerpt. 
30 years ago, a family was spending a holiday together on the east coast of Vancouver Island. A young father and mother, their two small daughters, and an older couple, the husband's parents. What perfect weather. Every morning, every morning it's like this. The first pure sunlight falling through the high branches, burning away the mist over the still water of Georgia Strait. The tide out a great empty stretch of sand, still damp but easy to walk on, like cement in its very last stage of drying. The tide is actually less far out. Every morning, the pavilion of sand is shrinking, but it still seems ample enough. The changes in the tide are a matter of great interest to the grandfather, not so much to anyone else. Pauline, the young mother, doesn't really like the beach as well as she likes the road that runs behind the cottages for a mile or so north till it stops at the bank of the little river that runs into the sea. If it wasn't for the tide, it would be hard to remember that this is the sea. You look across the water to the mountains and the mainland, the ranges that are the western wall of the continent of North America, these humps and peaks coming clear now through the mist and glimpsed here and there through the trees by Pauline as she pushes her daughter's stroller along the road are also of interest to the grandfather and to his son, Brian, who is Pauline's husband. The two men are continually trying to decide which is what, which of these shapes are actual continental mountains and which are improbable heights of the islands that ride in front of the shore. It's hard to sort these things out when the array is so complicated and parts of it shift their distance in the day's changing light. Okay, Peter, so the children stay. So first things first, I think we should talk about Pauline. If you had to describe her in one sentence, what would, what would that sentence be? I mean, Pauline is, I mean, it's what a trick question. I mean, it's like, I mean, reading this, you are, at least I am, 100% with Pauline, <laughs> like in terms of having to endure. I mean, it's all, I was thinking about this, so much of the story is in that last phrase of the first paragraph where it's the young couple, their kids, and comma, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the husband's parents. It's to have to endure I'm not answering your question because it's too hard, but I, I think that Pauline is somebody who, who, unlike most people, I think is able to see the contours of her life in really stark terms, you know, and, and, and in a way that, that is both harsh and, and at times even beautiful, I think. Mm -hmm. No, that is so well said because Pauline is the one out of everybody you just introduced in that reading who likes the road that runs behind the cottages. Right. Uh, not the ocean. Not the, not, the, not the Pacific. Yeah, not what everybody else is looking at. So I like that one of the first things you said about her is that she sees everything. And then while the two men are continually trying to decide which is what, um, the real issue that they should be paying attention to is what I think Pauline kind of knows, which is it's hard to sort things out when the array is so complicated and parts of it shift their distance in the day's changing light. You know, it's like it's all it's almost all there in that excerpt that you read, even though we have several more pages <laughs> to go. But it but Pauline is I think it's is really introduced. So um, we start to understand Pauline on this first page. You sort of have to look um, closely at the whole, you know, n nothing is for nothing. And, you know, why mention this? Why would Alice Monroe mention this? And there's a very good reason. And it, and it is in part due to what you said about Pauline. She is really a complicated character. Yes. And somebody who I, I, we were both talking kind of offline about the time the first times we read this story and i i can i i know it was at least i, I what's the when did this come out it, it, it's from the love of a good woman and the, yeah and the, 
the collection came out in 98. Yeah. I think I read it when it came out, you know, in, in the New Yorker in 1997, 96. And I, you know, it, it's, it's one of those stories that <laughs> embeds itself for good. And, and, you know, it may not even be Alice Monroe's best story. I mean, we, you know, we could talk at length about, you know, its place in her other stories, but, but regardless of anything, it, it, it's one that lodged, it lodged immediately and it has remained. Mm-hmm. I, think, I don't know how I got off on that when you were talking about Pauline. I'm sorry. No, I think it's because of Pauline. <laughs> because, you know, when I read this right after my daughter was born, as I want to say it was, it was early 1998, something like that. It was a long time ago. And I've read lots of Alice Monroe stories several times over in the interim, but for some reason, not this one. So when you suggested it, I was sort of like, oh, yeah, the children's day. I've read that a million times. And then when I go to the story, no, I, I, no, I haven't read it a million times. Maybe I read it a couple of times back then. But it was so, as you say, I'll use your word, it was so lodged in, it, it was so much a part of, I don't know, of, of something of mine in terms of mater, maternity or something <laughs> that I felt like I just, I, I carry this story around with me. I can't imagine having, reading it, you know, being a parent who is just becoming a parent, mm-hmm. you know, as, as opposed, I mean, I, I didn't read it in those circumstances. Now reading it with two kids, it, 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 it is different for sure. You know, it's just, it, but, but yeah, it's, it's, I think, I think Pauline, I mean, just to go back to your original question, I think that what makes her so compelling is that I, I, I was, I don't exactly know how to articulate this because I think you can't really talk about the story without kind of trying to shed some light on the, the technical aspects of it because Pauline is known to us through a very, what I'd call pretty act, I mean, not, I mean, I'm going to get all geeky, but pretty active narrator. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this, this narrator is, is a force in this story. And that is, it's, it's through the narrator that we understand what Pauline is going through. And just to set it up, I mean, so as, you know, 30 years ago, a family was vacationing on, on an island um, on the east coast of Vancouver. Island, a young father and mother, their two small daughters and an older couple, the husband's parents. So that those are the you know it's fairly s- simple uh, setup of a, a family vacation. And then as the story moves forward, you realize that Pauline is coming into this vacation with a, a lot of weight, <laughs> a lot of background weight in terms of what's going on in her life, and. Again, I feel like I've gone off the rails, but um, I was yeah. trying to set it up and say it's a perfect situation. Even that the use of the word perfect, which appears uh, at least twice in the first two pages. Perfect thing. They've gone to the perfect place and they're the perfect family. Brian's father is trying to drive that perfection. And that's part of the tension with Brian and therefore part of the tension with Pauline. And, you know, part of what we see with, so part of what we see with Pauline is this unresolvable issue that exists between Brian and his father. I think Brian would like to be like his father, but in order to do that, he has to mistreat his mother and women in general. <laughs> and belittle them or expect less of them this whole business of of the map you know i love i love it when somebody introduces a map in a short story cuz then i can really just go to town <laughs> but there's this whole thing about brian's mother not being able to decipher a map and she's so it it boggles her mind her mind is boggled because her husband believes it's because she is a female and Brian believes that it's because she is his mother. So 
Brian's father has this idea that women are just so inept. And Brian has this idea that his mother is inept at most things because she has been consumed by her role as a mother. The caring and feeding of her children were her have been her primary concern, and now it seems like the grandchildren are going to be the, the, the subjects of her attention. But, you know, but this is not going to... Be, this is what Pauline is... As you, you use the word endure, this is what Pauline is enduring, is what these two men are all about on this vacation, where she is set apart from this play, this community theater play that she is going to be in, and Jeffrey. Um, maybe it's too soon to bring Jeff, uh, before, Jeffrey too. Before we get into Jeffrey, <laughs> okay. I, this is the most insufferable. I mean, I've been on a lot of insufferable vacations, <laughs> and, 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 you know, in the family dynamics, I'm well aware of how this can work. This is, this isn't, these people are I think they're some of the greatest villains in yeah. in, in in Monroe. These people are horrific <laughs> in 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 a quiet, subtle way. The father is even he's described as dangerous to her because of the subtle things, the subtle undercuts that he constantly does. But I think the father is well aware that Pauline is 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 not just set apart from them, but but I think the father is aware that Pauline is not buying into their propaganda. I think I think families have propaganda and the propaganda of Brian's family is so, you know, it's the, it's the it's the the joke I mean Brian's the jokester. He's always telling jokes, which is always I mean I run away if I around anyone who tells jokes. <laughs> I, I find I find joke telling to be this like almost like trap. Like you you you're trapped into somebody's sort of because they're not stories, they're encapsulated. Somebody else created them, and 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 you're repeating them. And I, I can't stand jokes anyway. <laughs> so Brian, Brian is this joke, jokey guy who, and yes, he's not as brutal and nasty to his wife as his father is to his mother, but he's also very undercutty of Pauline too. I think, even though I think. He is aware, as his father is aware, that Paul, there's something about Pauline that is distant from this family, and 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 increasingly so. Aside from the fact that she is now in a community theater production and is having an affair with the director, which Monroe brings in not as like a reveal, like as this sort of like surprise, but sort of like for as background information. Yeah. And and the thing about Brian is that he's a, he, he's a, he's terrible at telling jokes. I mean, they come off as like he's roasting his own mother um to his students. I mean, he's he seems like a really immature guy and um he's trying so hard to be the f- clever one and and I can only imagine that it's a result of trying to impress his father and then he just takes it too far because his father as you say is dangerous because of the subtle ways that he does it and and Brian isn't very subtle and so they're very different in the way that they approach even Pauline I mean in fact Brian carries the playpen down to the beach for her to sort of give the semblance of this family unity um, because Pauline spends so much time uh, not with them, not by the right. playpen. Well, <laughs> and he's Pauline, like, Pauline's always trying to escape. Yeah. And but, that's, that's what that road is about. So all of this has to do with Pauline kind of like, and, and Brian, you know, reading this story again after, you know, how many years? Over 20 years, mm-hmm. over 20 years of, um, of returning to it, you know. Mm-hmm. I do want to talk about Brian because, you know, Brian's a, a complete dumbass, but all, but, but, and annoys me to no end. But there's a certain amount of, of dignity, not dignity, it's not the right word, but there's, there is a balanced approach to him that is kind of s- startling, I, I think. And I think when you said that he brings the playpen down, he's, 
he's desperately trying to get his wife integrated into his family life, even though she has no interest and who would want to, but it, but you know, you got one family, it's Brian's family. He wants, he wants everyone to be together on this trip. And, and in, in the past, you know, it has been a struggle to get Paulina. They have two kids. Um, uh, wow. How old is Caitlin? Uh, five. Four. So Caitlin's five and the, and the baby. And so they've been doing this for years now. This is a routine family trip every summer. And, you know, and I think Brian's always on pins and needles whether or not Pauline's even going to come, you know. And so I, 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 I felt a certain amount of like that tension uh, in terms of Brian just just wanting this to work, you know, just wanting this family unit to work. And I think partly knowing that, that that's really unlikely. Uh, I totally agree with you. Um, there was something about Brian that I thought was still salvageable. <laughs> like he's he may just come into his own, but too bad Pauline won't be around to witness it. Um, and and sorry, sorry to interrupt, no. but he, he's 30. He's 30 or so. She's 26. I mean, they're, they're, these guys are young. <laughs> they're trying to just figure stuff out, you know, and I think that yes by the end of the story you realize that yes brian probably was unformed at this point mm-hmm. i do i will say that um on one page of the story we're reading about brian calling his students boneheads and saying his father was the king of philistines and his mother was a dish rag and then you know let's see five pages over the narrator is describing a conversation that Pauline and Brian are having. And it says they went on speculating and comfortably arguing in a way that was not unusual, but not altogether unfamiliar to them. They had done this before at long intervals in their married life, talked half the night about God or fear of death or how children should be educated or whether money was important. Um, that, that seems to me evidence of something more substantive between them. I mean, friends can talk about these things. Acquaintances can talk about these things. Well, these two people are married, but at least there's some, there's, there seems to have been something kind of foundational between them. Um, you know, the things that married couples, I suppose, should do, should connect through conversation and sharing. Um, but it, it's a very surprising part of the story for me. And I, I think it's worth noting when that comes, because the scene with the married couple in bed is after we as readers know that Pauline is having an affair with the director of the community theater production. That scene with the two of them in bed is is a beautiful scene and, and one that we don't have any sense what this affair is about. We don't know if it, if it's serious or not Um, from the way that Monroe kind of presents it. It, you know, it seems almost like, you know, kind of side note to the story in a way, like it doesn't prevent Pauline from going away with the family. Um, And now they're in bed and that what they're talking about is the play that she is the star of even though she's had no acting experience. Brian's asking her about the play. And there's really tender moments here, including a moment where she puts her cheek on his shoulder. I mean, you know, the most intimate scenes in this story are between a couple who are about to not be a couple anymore. Which, yes. I, which I think is, is really striking. I like what you were saying about what Brian wants his family to be. There's this part where it says he wanted Pauline to be connected. He wanted the children to be connected to his own childhood. He wanted these holidays to be linked to holidays of his childhood with their uh, lucky or unlucky weather, car troubles or driving records, boating scares, bee stings, marathon monopoly, all that. And it says the only time they could talk to each other was in bed late at night. But they did talk then more than was usual with them at home, where Brian was so tired that often he fell immediately asleep. And in ordinary daylight, it was often hard to talk to him because of his jokes. 
She could see the joke brightening his eyes. His coloring was very like hers, dark hair and pale skin and gray eyes, but her eyes were cloudy and his were light like clear water over stones. She could see it pulling at the corners of his mouth as he forged among your words to catch a pun or the start of a... So he's in that moment where they're talking, he's much more interested in in telling a joke and being funny, being the funny guy or the clever guy. I think that's because that's how he has survived his father. And yeah, I, I think that's I think that's probably very true. I, there's a guy there's a guy on my block who who I who is so who never says I just see him like in passing, you know, he's on his bike or I'm on my, you know, walking right. And he never says anything that isn't like a some kind of stupid joke. Never. And it, it's like this weird he, he's trying to actually like connect, you know, yes. and he's completely incapable. Utterly, we make fun of him in the neighborhood because he's a, he's just a complete buffoon. But but it's it's a desperation. I hope he doesn't listen to this. It's a desperation uh, that he has. I think, and that's what Brian. You know, I mean, he is a more nuanced character than he is is that that I had on my sort of initial read, where all I wanted to do was to get away from him and all i wanted to do was to get away from uh the father and the mother uh on this vacation it is it really is a vacation from hell and what what is in the background is that pauline is having this affair um and and not just an affair with a with a with a man another man it's an affair with like another possible life which is what i think you know she she She's somebody who is apparently uh, interested in books and and, you know, and 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 sort of has this other um, kind of imaginative life that is separate from her family. We don't know much about her otherwise other than that, really. And we know but we know that the the theater opens some kind of um, opens something up. And, and opens up more possibilities, you know, sort of not almost, not a cliche, but but bordering on one, don't you think? Yeah, but it is it is an opportunity for her for Monroe to present her as someone who can be another character, be another person, albeit a dead one. That's a very interesting part of Pauline's character, too, is that for everything that we understand about her, she sees everything she, you know, she knows about this sort of alley, this sort of road behind the cottages. And she seems like a very smart person who maybe sort of has to cover up how smart she is because it just doesn't work with this family. They're just not interested. But at the same time, I feel like she really doesn't know what she wants. She just seems to understand that she doesn't really want what she has. I mean, even if she could never articulate this, it's like she just blindly goes into this play situation that sounds so disastrous anyway, with Jeffrey Toom. T O O M, not T O M B. Um, um, and even when she's when she says, let's see, her life was falling forwards. She was becoming one of those people who ran away. So she, you know, it's like she's thinking about herself as, I mean, almost ordinary in that way. Like uh, so many people do this. A woman, though, who shockingly and incomprehensibly gave everything up. For love, observers would say Riley, meaning for sex. None of this would happen if it wasn't for sex. And so then as the reader, we're like, oh, oh, really? Like, what's that about? And yet, what's the great difference there? It's not such a variable procedure in spite of what you're told. Skins, motions, contact results. Pauline isn't a woman from whom it's difficult to get results. Brian got them. Probably anybody would who wasn't wildly inept or morally disgusting. A little TMI here, but anyway. But nothing's the same. <laughs> nothing's but the it's same. Fun. It's funny that, I mean, you're really cutting to the chase. And I think I think that gets to the real heart of Pauline. I mean, she's somebody who is, you know, she she's not romantic by any stretch. And there's nothing romantic about this story, and that's why I love it so much. And that's uh, why yes. I think it's so. That's why it's so singular to me, because I think, I mean, you, 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 to go back to the play, 
all we really learn about the play happens in bed with her and Brian, which is which is wonderful. And all and the other parts we learn about the play are the wonderful descriptions that happen before that, just at the very early part of the story where Monroe talks about where they rehearse and sort of, you know, Pauline, who's the star of the sh- of the play, but still she's the only one who hasn't acted before. Like the bus driver has been in a few productions and others. The hairdresser has been in a production or two. And so Pauline's sort of the rookie. So what does she do? She's the one who volunteers to get the coffee and the soft drinks. And so she she goes out in, in, in this sort of repressed town of Victoria and is, you know, collects the you know the refreshments and brings them back and and then you know then they do their rehearsals and it's 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 so wonderfully described but actually i would say like on a technical level we don't even get a scene really (laughs) where where jeffrey is directing and they're they're performing the show it's really sort of um just kind of described to us from a distance and and then then there's the detail that you know then then jeffrey started locking the door after the others left and then Jeffrey and Pauline are there and they're having this affair, which again, isn't described with a great deal of passion on either side. It's almost like it just happened because it, it was destined to happen or they were in the right place at the right time or whatever. But, you know, is she in love with Jeffrey? So, so, so now we have arrived on vacation. The, the affair is ongoing and and here we are. And Brian, who again, not to give Brian this dolt credit, but Brian's the one who tells her, "Oh, you got to practice your lines for the play, <laughs> right?" And it was Brian who suggested that she do the play in the first place. Oh, like, yes, you know. So yeah. so so all of that is going on. But that's where we are right now. We are we are the structure of the story is fairly uh, simple: family vacation. The background, an affair. The background, the play. In bed with the husband who who is about to be left. And then the, the story kind of just catapults into motion. Well, I should not take us all the way back to the beginning. But I'm just going to very briefly say, because that's so perfect that you brought us to that point. But as you said, Brian is the one who says that she should be in this play. And then he says... She said that she couldn't be Eurydice. She couldn't act. But Brian came over to see what the conversation was about and said at once that she must try it. She just needs to kick in the behind, Brian said to Jeffrey. She's like a little mule. It's hard to get her started. No, seriously, she's too self-effacing. I tell her that all the time. She's very smart. She's actually a lot smarter than I am. At that, Jeffrey did look directly into Pauline's eyes impertinently and searchingly and she was the one who was flushing he had chosen her immediately as his eurydice because of the way she looked but it was not because she was beautiful i'd never put a beautiful girl in that party said i don't know if i'd ever put a beautiful girl on stage in anything it's too much it's distracting there's your romeo right and (laughs) jeffrey's basically telling her at the first meeting she's not beautiful and therefore he wants to put her in the play i mean jeffrey what's your take on jeffrey I think Jeffrey, because of this little section, I think Jeffrey is one of these guys, as if I know so many, but I don't. But I I know about them because I read books. <laughs> but he's, he's just one of these guys who sees a weakness in Pauline immediately that he will prey upon. He's a lonely guy. He's, He's got this, you know, relationship with his mother. He's trying to find his way. He has this day job, but he'd really like to be doing something else. But he's, he, there's something about looking into people's eyes in this story that's very interesting to me. I mean, and it's the the whole thing with Eurydice about, you know, the the lover has to walk behind her. They can never look at each other in the face, or back she goes to the underworld. But Jeffrey did look directly into her eyes. At the moment where Brian is belittling her and saying she's self-effacing and she's insecure and she's a diffident girl and she can't stand up for herself. And it's sort of like, okay, <laughs> you're going to come into this little community theater web 
that I've created, and it will buy him some time with her. I mean, it sounds like I'm making it sound like he's he's so calculating, and he's not. But it worked. Well, he's a goofball. I mean, and, yeah. and, you know, the men the men are are ridiculous in this story, as men are. You know, I mean, there's nothing unrealistic about Brian. They're not they're, these guys are not cardboard cutouts. They're not they're not cliches. They are they are flesh and blood. You know. Goofballs, goofballs and worse and worse than worse than that. I mean, Jeffrey is insufferable in a totally different way. And I've known I, I've known a few Jeffreys too, and I'm sure I know you've known Jeffreys. I mean, <laughs> you know, people who are and and again, there's a little bit of everybody and everybody, right? I mean, Jeffrey's a snob. Jeffrey's like looking down on you know, he's like, oh, you, this is the land of no coward, and I'm gonna put on <laughs> I'm gonna put on this more sophisticated play, and you know, because I'm gonna I'm gonna bring culture to the Philistines. I mean, and even in, at one point, Brian calls his father king of the Philistines. Both of them, <laughs> I think, are aware. All three of the younger generation in this story that the that the old folks are, you know, are, are, are ridiculous. But what makes the 30 year olds and the 25 year olds and the 26 year old in the story any less ridiculous, including Pauline, except that she it's 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 her story. And she and she gets the she it's, it's everything hinges on her. And that's why that's why you know, towards the end of the story, it becomes so devastating because the story turns on her in a way that that still startles. Why don't we t- maybe we t- talk about what happens in on the vacation? What happens? Yes. Plot wise. I mean, we we, we generally don't dwell on <laughs> plot, but, but, you know, Monroe is I and mean, we haven't even talked about it. Do we need to discuss how great Alice Monroe is, how wonderful she is? No. Um, I didn't oh. need anyone to tell me that no, ever. No, you know? no. I didn't. I didn't need the Nobel Committee or Jonathan Franzen in the New York, New York no. Times or anybody to tell me how great Alice Monroe is, and she still doesn't need that shit. <laughs> well, we're kind of saying it anyway. You know, people have all kinds of ideas about why women cheat. So, and they they go from you know psychological reasons to physiological reasons, hormonal things. I mean, there's this, I've, I've read about it, right? In the, in, in the waiting room of the dentist's office in a magazine. I was going to say in magazines, (laughs) but also in novels too, right? Novels, you know, novels are not immune from like that kind of, you know, easy psychologizing. Right? Well, Pauline has read them, you know, Pauline has read yeah. them all. And so sure. it's, it's interesting to me that we've established that these guys ain't all that. And she's going to hop from one to the other. And, and I'm, we're kind of thinking that Jeffrey's the lesser of the two. But for Pauline, it means that she can extract herself from this, um, the insufferable aspects of her life. Because there seem to be some pretty comfortable, okay aspects of her life with Brian and, and her family unit, except we don't, we don't really see them. We don't really know what those could be. We only know that she seems really seems to be looking for a way out, either into this this tragedy of the community theater play where she can be somebody else for a little while, except she's dead, or... Um, you know, in a life with with Jeffrey, which she tries to imagine relearning how to do things because when when she does leave the family at the vacation spot to meet up with Jeffrey, who's shown up there and called her on the phone. Um, so that part was that part is very dramatic, I think. Um, can I? It, yes. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, you know, so, so you're on vacation. You're a mom. With a four-year-old and a and a and a six-month-old, or I think a, a year-old, and and your lover calls and insists you come to a motel in town, which which is you know a car ride away. You can't get there. That's it's the beach town, and then there's this other town. Your lover's waiting in a motel in in the other town. How are you going to get there? What are you going to do with the two kids? How does this work? How does this work technically? And the thing is, Monroe knows it and in you know in story after story she uh uh um 
articulates the the horrors of <laughs> domestic life. I can remember one another story where the the mom is going to kill herself if she has to reread the, the children's book again. Yeah. You know the, the the picture book again. Um, so there, you know, Monroe literally walks us through how this works. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, she's like, okay, I'll meet you there, and then when Brian gets home with the car, cause he's out getting the car fixed or his father's car fixed. She's like, I got to go into town. I need something. And she sort of says, doesn't say what it is. And she, so she assumes that, you know, he'll think it's tampons or something. And so she takes the car and she leaves the kids with Brian and the, and the grandparents and heads to town to meet Jeffrey. Okay, fine. You could, you could pull that off, right? You could pull that off. Mm-hmm. You come back. You come back with the tampons, right? <laughs> Except that's not what happens. And what happens is, <laughs> as you know, <laughs> she stays overnight. Yep. What do you? How do you stay? How does a mom with a four-year-old and a one-year-old stay overnight in a motel during a vacation? How does that work? What happens then? Well, she's got to call Brian and tell him. <laughs> She's got to call Brian and tell him. Tell him what? Well, we don't even know because the phone call is truncated. And the one thing about this story that's so remarkable is that, and and I don't think we can possibly do it justice in talking about it. And that's why we were very hesitant to do Monroe in the first place, because it's 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 almost impossible to sort of map out how it works mm-hmm. but be, in, in the way that she works with scenes and the way she doesn't work with scenes, the way she sort of radically compresses information but basically it's all in my head i can see everything that happens she's in the motel they have this torrid night right yeah um and but the phone call happened before that the phone call she had to call her husband to say that she was not coming back that night because it's but, just so great. But this is it. This The radical compression, the things that she doesn't say, but that we can somehow see. And the, the question that's always in my head when I read Monroe is, how does she know? How does she know? Does she know all this about the the fa- Brian's father? And how does she know? You know, where does she? Th- I know these people. Where, how does she also know them? Um, but... When, when she says, uh, when it says that Pauline will learn to do all these things again, that she, you know, they will build a sort of a domestic life together, she and Jeffrey. She didn't bring her watch, and Jeffrey doesn't wear one. Um, and then they'll have a bedroom, a kitchen, an address. He'll go to work. She'll go to the laundromat. Maybe she'll go to work, too, selling things, waiting on tables, tutoring students. But she, there's nothing here about the children in that particular reverie, in that particular imagining what it will be like when she has to sort of relearn how to be Pauline married to a guy or have to be Pauline, you know, in uh, cohabitation with, with a man that isn't, and I'll just say the word, isn't perfect or, or even close to it. You know, she's left an insufferable situation, and I feel like she she may be going into one. The idea that Jeff that she says and Jeffrey doesn't wear one, it seems to me like that that's something that she's noted because it's problematic for her because Jeffrey just seems to be sort of this guy that is really um, just not a, a very settled guy. Right, begin. and and you know, and again, you know, I think that. I think it's as important to talk about what Monroe doesn't say as to what she does say. And, and it's it's all, you know, one thing, like we haven't quoted very much from this story. Mm-hmm. And we often quote from stories, but Monroe doesn't really lend herself to that. I mean, if you look at the sentences on an individual level, she has some money in her purse. She has to go out and buy a toothbrush, toothpaste, deodorant, shampoo, also vaginal jelly. Last night they used condoms the first two times, but nothing the third time. I mean, it's just all very matter of fact. It's all very direct. It's not very like there's nothing beautiful about the language and there's nothing beautiful about the situation except not, in, uh, uh, not on a sentence level. But there is something extraordinarily beautiful, I think, about what. About what what Pauline does, 
but you, you just were alluding to it. She is now thinking about, wow, she's no longer a wife in, in, in a very sudden, you know, decision wasn't planned. He came down there to meet her and demand, you know, and calls up the convenience store on the beach and she's called to the phone because this is the day, days long before cell phones. She's called to the phone and he says, I'm at the motel and she goes. And so now here she is. And she is starting to actually think about the future, which is going to be, like you said, going to the laundromat, kind of being with a little bit of a loser, but at least not, you know, the jokester or whatever it is. But as you as you also quoted earlier from the story itself, like the sex isn't a whole lot different with Jeffrey than it is with Brian, except, except, right? Except there's something actually that is different about everything. There's something more free. There's something more something that she didn't have before that now she has. And I think it is extraordinary and liberating, except for one huge problem. And what is I have a note in my in my in my book here to ask. I said, ask Yvette, do you believe it? Do you believe it? And I'm talking about page uh, 211. Uh, it is early. The motel is on the highway at the north end of town beside the bridge. There's no traffic yet. She scuffs along under the cottonwood trees for quite a while before a vehicle of any kind rumbles over the bridge, though the traffic on it shook their bed regularly late into the night. Their bed. Already their bed. Something is coming now. A truck. But not just a truck. There's a large bleak fact coming at her and it has not arrived out of nowhere it's been waiting cruelly nudging at her ever since she woke up or even all night caitlin and mara this is the night the morning after and i have in my little arrow yvette do you believe it yes i do because of the way i read the rest of the story when she says, um, so I don't want to skip what comes after that, but when she does say she doesn't need the keys to get back to them, she doesn't need the car, she could beg a ride on the highway, give in, give in, get back to them any way at all, how can she not do that? A sack over her head. A fluid choice, the choice of fantasy, is poured out on the ground and instantly hardens. It has taken its undeniable shape. And I will agree with you that in terms of lines to quote or lines to tattoo on your arm or, you know, or... I'm not saying I would. You know, I know. If anybody I ever did, it would be her. I think the next paragraph, uh, this is acute pain, that next paragraph, um, I think there's something that happens at paragraph length sometimes with Monroe for me, like this one, it will become chronic. Chronic means that it will be permanent, but perhaps not constant. It may also mean that you won't die of it. You won't get free of it, but you won't die of it. You won't feel it every minute, but you won't spend many days without it. And you'll learn some tricks to dull it or banish it. Try not to end up destroying what you incurred this pain to get. It isn't his fault. He's still an innocent or a savage who doesn't know there's a pain so durable in the world. Say to yourself, you lose them anyway. They grow up. For a mother, there's always waiting this private, slightly ridiculous desolation. They'll forget this time. In one way or another, they'll disown you. Or hang around till you don't know what to do about them, the way Brian has. <laughs> and still, what pain to carry along and get used to until it's only the past she's grieving for and not any possible present. So to answer your question, yes, I believe it. I do, because of what comes after. You, do you believe that she forgot about the kid? Did you believe that she... And, and, I, mean, I was just thinking, I had this fantasy of like going to the park during like a kid's soccer game and talking about this story and <laughs> asking people what they what they think of what, what Pauline does. Well, because we don't in this story. But, you know, I think that she, I think. No, I believe it. That she doesn't and, and, and that she doesn't that she go that she goes to town. She meets Jeffrey at the motel. 
and and here's where the part of the story we haven't discussed happens. She meets Jeffrey in town. She calls Brian to tell him to tell him whatever she tells him because Monroe doesn't actually tell us. And Brian is understanding. He's understanding as if he'd been sort of waiting for this for a long time, which I believe, because I don't think Brian is as doltish as he pretends to be or hides hides behind the jokes. But then he turns vicious, right? Mm-hmm. He turns vicious. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, then, what about the kids? The receiver began to shake against Pauline's ear. And we should note, this happens before the paragraph you just quoted. The receiver began to quote, shake against Pauline's ear. She said, we'll talk. But he did not seem to hear her. The children, he said, in this sh- same shivering, vindictive voice, changing the word kids to children was like slamming a board down on her. A heavy, formal, righteous threat. The children stay, Brian said. Pauline, do you hear me? No, said Pauline. Yes, I heard you, but all right, you heard me. Remember, the children stay. It was all he could do to make her see what she was doing, what she was ending, and to punish her if she did so. Nobody would blame him. There would, might be finagling. There might be her, her bargaining. There would certainly be humbling of herself. But there it was like a round cold stone or a gullet, like a cannonball, and it would remain there unless she changed her mind entirely. The children stay. Alice Monroe is the author of The Children Stay, This prolific and beloved author was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature in 2013. The essays Surviving the Lives We Have and A Palm of the Hand Story are by Peter Orner and appear in the book Am I Alone Here? Notes on Living to Read and Reading to Live. He's the author of five other books, including the story collection Maggie Brown and Others. Peter Orner holds the professorship in English and Creative Writing at Dartmouth College. This has been The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner from Book Public on Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rizzotti composed our theme music. Kathleen Creeden is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. <laughs>